don't think anyone would disagree with the idea that few years have presented as many challenges as 2020. But with so many of us working from home, workplace violence isn't a worry that would be at the top of our list. But maybe it should be. COVID-19 may have influenced the shape of workplace violence, but it certainly hasn't stopped it. And in many cases, it's made it worse. From fights over mask wearing to a recent spike in mass shootings, homicides in several major cities have increased in spite of an overall decrease in violent crime. For example, sometime in the dark hours of Sunday, September the 6th, gunmen opened fire inside a Riverside County marijuana farm, killing seven people. It was the 28th mass shooting in California since the beginning of the year and one of 400 incidents nationwide. So why is this happening? You know, no one knows for sure. Some people think it's the tensions arising from the coronavirus pandemic lockdown. Others think the pandemic has just exacerbated pre-existing social problems that feed violence in certain areas, financial pressures, limited access to mental health care, and of course, on top of all this, social isolation that can bring relationship conflicts to a boil and leave abuse victims with nowhere to go. Most of us don't realize that mass shootings often begin as domestic disputes or confrontations among acquaintances. In fact, between 2008 and 2018, six in 10 mass killings, defined as at least four people dead, not counting the shooter, occurred in private homes. So as the boundaries between work and home become increasingly blurred, and we all find ourselves increasingly stressed and isolated, knowing how to handle a threat of violence is critical. Fortunately, our guest today is a threat assessment expert who is going to talk to us about workplace violence and what we need to know to keep ourselves and the people we care about safe. Welcome to the Forensic Psychologist. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical and forensic psychologist, private investigator, and as always, your host. I'd like to introduce our guest today, Dr. Steve Albrecht, a retired police officer and a pioneer in workplace and school violence prevention, and co-author of one of the very first books on workplace violence, Ticking Bombs. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks, Joni. Great to be with you as always. I've known you for a pretty long time now, and I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time. And yet when I started thinking about talking about workplace violence, initially I thought this is just not good timing. I mean, every, a lot of people are at home, a lot of things are shut down. And then I really began reading so many different articles about the, some of the challenges that retail facilities are having, for example, when it comes to workplace violence and people getting angry and then domestic violence situations. So I wanted to get your expert opinion on how COVID and all of the things that have happened as a result of it has changed the face of workplace violence. The things that we typically see for workplace violence is connected to mass shootings. And I, I think especially for the public, that's the way that they perceive the subject. It must be only about mass shootings. That's the thing that the news media most often covers. But it's really about the interpersonal issues that people feel in the workplace. And we see it in discipline and termination problems. We see it in conflict between employees. Well, once we take the employee out of the workspace, then what happens to the workplace violence incidents? Happily, the numbers have gone way down in terms of mass shootings. I think we've had it two in the last six or seven months. But then we look at the interpersonal problems at the house, which is the domestic violence that we see in, in people cooped up in the homes during the quarantine. And also we still see the same sort of lower level issues, which is conflict between employees and threats between employees. It's just not as face-to-face -face as much as anymore. It's now on the screen. One thing that I've personally witnessed is 
disgruntled customers or people at the gym. I was at the gym one day and this person just pitched a fit about having to wear a mask on a treadmill. Now, again, we can have different opinions about whether we should be doing that, et cetera. But I can't imagine that somebody who works in a gym or who works in a store gets a lot of training on how to deal with a customer who's angry or even threatening. You really feel for those people and you look at the environments you've talked about where not only does that stuff happen, but it's also captured on video. So there may be somebody from the news media that's there, coincidentally, or people with their cell phones and the next thing it's on YouTube. And so the optics, especially for a lot of organizations, are not great. There's a a pretty famous one where this guy is wrestling with these Walmart employees about not wearing his mask turned into a physical wrestling match. And so the optics for these organizations is to say, we, we need to, to remind our employees to have discretion and to take care of themselves, but also that you know, not to put hands on people that don't want to cooperate with the process. The other thing I'm interested in is why we still have these arguments about wearing my mask versus not wearing a mask. We're, we're, not, we're not two weeks into this pandemic. We're, we're six months into it. So you'd think the standard had been set already. Yeah, it's amazing. And I don't know if it's the fatigue effect or if people are just becoming increasingly polarized or what, but at least from my one person's observations, I did not see that particular battle being kind of won on either side or resolved. Yeah, I think we get so many mixed messages from the media as to the efficacy of masks and, and the social distance thing. And then you see large crowds, groups, people, whether it's for the holidays or a protest or whatever, gathering together with no masks. I think a lot of the mixed messages I, you know, I feel for, for people in retail environment, those, in a perfect world, those jobs are difficult. You got the entitled customer, you have the drunk customer, you have the, the customer who steals from you, they have the assaultive customer. And it, it's not a great, think about the folks who come into the, the convenience store at two o'clock in the morning and have uh, a lot of cocktails under their belt. It's just not a, a safe environment for them in period. It is difficult. And I'm glad you brought that up because I want to just talk to you about the different types of workplace violence, because I do think most of us, myself included, have this stereotypical view of workplace violence as this disgruntled employee or terminated employee who's got a chip on his or her shoulder who comes in with a rifle and starts shooting people. And yet, as you alluded, workplace violence is much more broad than that. And then you look at jobs where we never even think about the danger. Driving a taxi cab is right up there and people in, in Uber and Lyft type of jobs. And, and then just the whole retail environment of being robbed. People don't con- consider that to be workplace violence. In San Diego, when I was 15 years old, I got robbed at this little milk store I worked at and it changed my life. I was laying on the ground with a gun to my head and I said, I'm going to go be a cop. That, it was a life-changing moment for me. And you look at, at workplace violence from a robbery perspective it impacts the customers, the, the employees who get robbed, the owner of the store, the franchisee. There's a lot of people that are in that sort of concentric circles of a robbery as a workplace violence crime. So what would be a good definition of workplace violence? I always look at the, the larger picture, which is anything that creates fear of injury or death with the employee. And so it could happen you know, through a verbalization issue. It could happen with a physical threat or it could happen with a physical assault. I think, as you said, many people see the perspective as crazy people with guns coming into the mall and shooting it up, where that's a, a smaller, certainly noticeable and, and horrific example. But you look at the things that are emotional bullying and, and, the, and the bullying and physical harassment and things that, that have a, a component to it where people are, are fearful of being injured or killed, that's workplace violence to me. And then when we look at the you know, domestic violence piece of it, people say, well, how is domestic violence workplace violence? Well, it happens at work. It certainly does. I actually saw an article this morning, a news article about a tragedy that happened 12 hours ago in Orlando 
where a man went into his wife's workplace. She went to work at a Navy credit union and shot her and then stood over her as she lay dying and shot her three more times. And so there's clearly an example of somebody who comes into, comes into the workplace, knows his estranged wife is going to be there and kills her. You know, and, and I think in the early 90s, my Ticking Bombs book came out in 94. And I think right after that, in like 95 or 96, I was in Las Vegas doing some training, early training in this subject for a credit union. And I think I was doing like a two-day session, just a, 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 two sessions in the morning and two sessions in the afternoon times two days. Right before the, you know, the, I started the last session on the last day, the, the branch manager comes in and says, we have to cancel. And I said, why? And she said, one of our tellers was killed by our ex-boyfriend in the branch. Exact same scenario. Came in, shot her, and they went to lunch. You know how that goes. We're going to try to reconcile our relationship. And it, it didn't go well. And he followed her back into the branch and murdered her. Hmm. That is such a tragic thing. And not only for the, obviously for the victim, the direct victim, but I can imagine how traumatizing it would be for coworkers who witnessed that. We talked about sort of concentric circles of, of victimization, which is there's the people involved and their family members, but just look at everybody else who's impacted. I remember in, in San Diego that there was a case where a guy paid for his lunch at a nice restaurant and shot himself right after he ate his meal and lunchtime. So you say, okay, who's impacted by that? The, all the people that work there. And, and the people that operate that restaurant, they have to come in and they actually change the physical, you know, locality of the restaurant. They, 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 you know, tore out all the carpet and painted and moved all the tables just to change that dynamic of what this person had did. You know, a highly selfish act in that environment where it impacts probably 60 or 70 people in one swing. Absolutely. Do we have any statistics on how common workplace violence is? I know we're talking about a broad range of behaviors, but I know that there's some attempt to track different types of workplace violence. What do we know about that? The Bureau of Labor Statistics, they give us a lot of stats and then the Department of Labor as well. And you hear the phrase, two million people are threatened each year at work. And that comes from insurance providers. I think if we look at the four categories, which is the most reasonable way that we see this as as either domestic violence, which is category four, or the, there's a relationship between the, the in-person and the providing services like students and, and hospital patients in category two, and then ex-employees in category three. And then in category one, the, the crime, the, the robbery piece, the numbers are really skewed towards the first category, which is the robbery piece. And I think still a lot of people, even cops that I, that I worked with or talked to, didn't really see robbery as a workplace violence incident. But there are just so many concentric circles of victimhood around those people that are involved in it. And you talk about people that don't get therapeutic help for those situations, and they have PTSD for years. And what, are you, what is the employer's responsibility to provide a safe workplace? Because I, you could, obviously you can hear so many different opinions about that. One, one of course, being, hey, if somebody's determined to go in and kill his ex-wife, in the workplace, it's going to happen all the way to it's the employer's responsibility to be on top of these things. I tell you, the, the plaintiff's lawyers have really paved the road on this in terms of demanding in discovery after their client is injured or killed as either a, an employee or as a, as a vendor or a customer in, in a facility where they say, what was your workplace violence prevention plan? What screening did you use in terms of the HR part for the employee that you brought on board that ended up shooting my client? And so the plaintiff's attorneys really drive where employers should be. I guess one good thing you could say about workplace violence as a concept, as a subject matter in business is it is mature, like sexual harassment is mature. If you look at sexual harassment, we have a policy for it. We have an investigative protocol. We have consequences for perpetrators and support for victims. We have a reporting process for employees to be able to report. Same thing with workplace violence. 
consequences for threateners, support for victims, including employee assistance program and counseling and things like that. And then a, a mandate that's been given by the legislators and by the, by the kind of the court of common sense in terms of we're going to investigate these things, we're going to figure out what went on, and we're going to create the safest environment possible. So you look at the stage has really been set by the almost three decades of cases that we have seen. What do you think most prevents coworkers or managers from speaking up about somebody in the workplace if they're worried about? I think it's, it's a weird phenomenon. When I started in this business, the thing that was really brought to me was I'm, I'm fearful about retaliation. If I report this coworker who has made threats or I report this coworker who has talked about domestic violence on his spouse or partner, or I report this coworker who has brought a gun to work, that somehow this person is going to retaliate against me. And, and in my experience, I've not found that to be true. I only had one case where that was ever a situation involved gang members, where this guy had to testify against gang members in a city municipality type of situation. But I feel as the, the perpetrator at that moment in time is mostly concerned about himself or herself and saving their own skin. They're not necessarily concerned about retaliating against the person who reported them. And the other part is, is good supervisors and managers, when confronted by the perpetrator who says, who said I did that or who said I, I made those threats? The answer is, it came to my attention. I'm not telling you who said those things. Yeah, I would, and I would imagine, Steve, and again, you're the expert in terms of dealing with some of these threats and complaints directly. I would imagine that the way that person, the, the person who's going to the manager or supervisor, the way he or she is treated by that supervisor or manager in disclosing that information would have a lot to do with people in the future being willing to do that. I think that you're absolutely right. I think there's a need for what I would call management courage and, and leadership is leadership, but management courage is a different animal completely, which is I have to have the courage as a manager, supervisor, department director to step up and to listen to what this employee has to say and to not to suggest that you're overreacting or it's not that big of a deal or we should ignore it. And then I need to reach out to what I would call the safety and security stakeholders. That's HR, security, if that's a function in the organization, the company attorney, the, the risk management or insurance or safety people, if that's a function, and then the facilities people. So we're always talking about the value and need for a team approach in these things. And I try to tell supervisors, this is not a you issue, it's an us issue. And do you think people are speaking up more? I, I, I think so because of the, the media coverage. When you look at these events, especially that happens in, in K-12 schools and these mass shootings that happen in public events, I think there's a maturity built into the subject now where people are much less hesitant about speaking up. And I also think that our response from an HR side of it and the security side of it and even the law enforcement intervention is much more detailed and we can count on the response to these things as being something that's going to solve the problem. Whereas 20, 30 years ago, there was not as much confidence in the systems that we had in place that we could stop these guys. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to The Forensic Psychologist and I'm your host, Dr. Joni Johnston. If you miss one of our episodes, you can always find us on iHeartRadio, Apple, Google, Android, or even by email. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan 
protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. I'm your host, Dr. Joni Johnston. How important, are, and I guess how helpful, do you think background checks are in helping reduce the risk of workplace violence? I guess I'm old school on this. I, I like background checks a lot as a way of looking at past behavior as from your work in terms of future behavior. But I think we've made, and this is a political belief here, we've made background checks more toothless because we've taken out a lot of the criteria. You look at California as a ban the box state for and other states following suit. And I'm cognizant of the fact that not everybody that has a criminal record is still a criminal and people change and, and they rehabilitate themselves. But I think we put a lot of obstacles in place that make it difficult for organizations to make decisions about hiring people based just on the background information, even if they follow the fair credit reporting uh, standards and, and give people copies of the report and they can rebut errors and things like that. I, I still think it's difficult. I like background checks a lot because I think it, it sets a standard for every applicant. We do the same way and we, we ask the same questions and we do the same background check. But we have, I think, a tough time in this country making value judgments based on the information that we receive is we don't want to be break the law or do something that's illegal. You know, I think the same probably could be true, could be said in a way about giving employee references of terminated employees. I mean, I know there was a time and hopefully there's been some progress, but I've done quite a bit of writing on healthcare serial killers. And it's unbelievable the number of times so many of people who end up behind bars forever for killing multiple people or multiple patients went from one hospital to the other. And nobody was willing to say, we really have suspicions about this person or this person was found inebriated in the workplace or because they were afraid of being sued. It's funny, you, you talk to attorneys and they say, what I'd rather defend, a, a, a case where the, the applicant didn't get the job because of a wrongful reference or a wrongful death case. And of course, the wrongful reference case is the one that they'd like to, to defend, not the wrongful death. When I started way back when as an HR guy, I was taking some advice from SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management. And I remember back in those days, only one state, which was Utah, had basically a blanket immunity for the truth when it came to references. A lot of other states had all these restrictions in place. You can't say this, you can't say that. Utah says, if you say something accurately, yes, the guy was fired for sexual harassment. Yes, he was fired for stealing. And, and if you were accurate in your disclosure to a, a potential employer, you can't be sued. But I think out of the other 49 states that have put in so many restrictions, that I think reference checks, oftentimes, especially when they come from the, the applicant's friends, are pretty worthless. It would be in our perfect world that people say, here's the truth about this person. Here's copies of their performance evaluations. Here's ways for us to make a value adjustment as to whether or not we should bring this person into our work culture. Yeah, I agree. Particularly when you have a workplace that is, when you have such vulnerable people and there's you know, such potential for abuse, which I guess could be said of all workplaces, but certainly in a hospital setting, for example, you have patients who are in there because they're sick and vulnerable. 
A parallel to that is churches, and we see well-meaning churches. They want to hire, they have a K through 8 or K through 12 or, you know, K through 6 school there at the church, or they have Sunday school on the weekends where they say, we want to hire this volunteer. Seems like a nice guy that he's known in the community. Why would we need to do a background check? And everybody knows him. He's great. And then he turns out to be the child molester or the child abuser. And so we need protocols for no matter how we know this person or what we know about this person to verify with valid information before we put these people into these situations, like you said, where where their clientele is vulnerable. So you were, I was asking you a minute ago about what is the biggest barrier for coworkers a lot of times, at least perceived barrier, because I hear you saying that in reality, you really haven't come across any situation where somebody reported a coworker and the coworker, you know, was bent on revenge or attacked that person or whatever. You mentioned domestic violence and that coming into the workplace. And I've read different statistics. I was reading one study that said that 54, 54% of domestic violence victims opted not to tell somebody at work because they were afraid that they might lose their job or they were embarrassed by the situation or they were just worried about how that employer might handle it. Should domestic violence victims, and of course I'm meaning somebody who's actively in a situation, be talking to their employer about it? I, I guess we can look at it from both sides of the perspective. One, one good thing about California is they have Senate Bill 400 and Senate Bill 400 says, if you're an employee and you report domestic violence to your employer, you cannot be fired. And you say to yourself, why don't all 50 states have that same legislation? They don't. It's about 10 or 11 states total that have that same legislation. In California, also under Senate Bill 400, we have to create a safety plan for that employee. Now, not at home, but at work, we have to create a safety plan. We move this person to another facility. We, we harden up access control so that the perpetrator can't get inside. So when you look and you say, why doesn't this exist in all, all 50 states? And then you go back to the idea that the employee who is fearful of being fired in other states, certainly, or fearful that this situation will mark them as a problem employee is not going to report. And that would also be based on the fact that, hey, I don't have a lot of confidence in my work culture here. They don't take care of keeping people safe and protected. So I'm not going to bother to report. And then that's when the bad guy shows up in the lobby with a gun. So to put you on the spot a little bit, Steve, let's say you had a friend who was in a situation like that and they didn't live in California and they were concerned about telling their employer about the situation. At the same time, they were also worried about their abuser coming to the workplace or hurting them or somebody else. What advice would you give that person? A couple of good things is we, we have a broader scope of this issue now than we used to before. There's a national domestic violence hotline. There's an 800 number that people can look up online to see. The national DV hotline can give lots of advice to people 24-7 when they call. The second thing is, in my work in, in HR, 70, 77%, 75% of HR directors and organizations are female. And they tend to have much more empathy about this situation. Not that males aren't empathic as well as me, that sometimes uh, a female HR director will have much more empathy and concern about this employee's safety and will be able to make things happen at a C-level, a C-suite level, in terms of interactions with the CEO and other people that need to make decisions about this employee. So I think that there's our history of this subject over a while. We built in some systems where that's possible to get help. And I would tell people, find somebody inside your organization you can trust whether it's your boss or your boss's boss or somebody from HR, or if you have security as a function and tell them what's going on because it's a team approach. We have to solve the problem, even though it's an individual concern. So what kind of violence 
workplace violence prevention programs do you think are the most effective? You know, we look at, at organizations that have t- done it from a kind of a top-down on a bottom-up approach, which is we train everybody in workplace violence awareness. Now, we don't have to train everybody in what risk factors are and how to assess cases and things like the work that you do. We can do that for department directors and threat assessment team members. A training program that's got a sense of uh, we train everybody from, from the janitors to the CEO that in awareness building at least, just like sexual harassment. So people can't say, I've never been exposed to this topic and I didn't know what to do. So the mandate, whether it's videos online or, or face-to-face live training, the stuff that I typically do, it's just this awareness building where people are on the same page and go, okay, I know who to talk to. I know who our safety and security stakeholders are. I know what to do. I absolutely agree that training needs to be tailored to its audience for sure. And I think historically, and I think that has completely changed, but historically there seemed to be a reluctance maybe for financial reasons to train people that were most likely to see something, the kind of the everyday employee who's coming to work every day, who's around all the coworkers. So what kinds of things, I'm an employee, I'm not a manager, I'm not a vice president. I'm just an everyday employee who comes to work and interacts with my coworkers. What kinds of things, Steve, should I report? I always tell employees, you're, you're an intuitive person. You, you used intuition to get here in this stage of your life and what's dangerous and not dangerous. And when someone says something that's a joke that you perceive as a joke and we move on versus someone says something that you go, that's not very funny. And why would they say that? When someone says, I could kill for a cigarette. We don't call the police. And someone says, I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse. We don't alert the stables. But there's a a definite feeling that people get that say, this person's behavior is odd to me. It doesn't match the context of the situation. And, And sometimes they don't know who to tell. And I'm not saying we run to mom and dad all the time in terms of HR or our bosses, but we have to have that intuitive sense that it's okay to talk about, hey, this guy said he was going to bring a gun to work if he got fired. I didn't just say, oh, I thought he was kidding. And, and from your review of these cases in the older days, that was a, the response we heard. I thought he was joking around. I didn't believe him. But one thing about the time that we're living in now, there is no way people can say stuff about going postal or shooting up the place or taking gun to work without it getting a response. Maybe in the old days it did, but now people say, you can't say that stuff at work based on all the number of cases we've had in this country. I definitely think the awareness has come, has really increased over the past several years. And that's something that I think has been a huge benefit. And I think we can talk about the pluses and minuses of social media in general, but I do think that has been one benefit of the media. You're right. There's nobody who I can imagine has been around in the United States for the past 10 years who has not heard the word going postal or heard the word workplace violence or heard of a shooting at a school or um, in a workplace. There's a a maturity or I guess an immaturity level for some employees who say that stuff and their defense was, I was just kidding. And I I say to them, especially in coaching conversations or whether it's moving to discipline, you you can't do that stuff anymore. It's 9-11 in the airport. You can't make jokes about guns and hijacking and bomb. No one has a sense of humor about that. We're not going to give you a free pass for your conduct, your words, your behavior as you know, just you're just kidding around. So the idea that there are consequences to these behaviors now, and also, like you said, there's a, a sense of of sort of national ownership of this issue that we don't allow these types of things to frighten employees. And that would be the first thing that the plaintiff's attorneys would look for or the, or the corporate attorneys would look for is what are the consequences for this person's behavior, even if it was just his words. And how do you typically get called in? If you look at, at the work that I do, I'm, I'm really blessed not to have to work 
I've not done a lot of work in the aftermath of a workplace violence shooting. That's a really tough response when you're coming after people who've been injured or killed. Most of my work is, is in threat assessment, where I, I get called by somebody who's typically a human resources function, maybe a security function or a senior leadership that says, we have this employee or ex-employee or domestic violence situation, and we're really concerned. Can you give us some help? And what I try to do is get the safety and security stakeholders on the line to say, this is a group discussion because you know the history, the context of this guy. I want to be able to tell you what, I'm, what I believe based on what you're telling me about this person, and we'll make some decisions as a group as to what to do. So I really like the team approach because I'm a pretty smart guy, but I'm not as smart as all those folks together. They know the history, the context. They can answer questions for me about this person's conduct and behavior that really fill in the gaps for me. And that's one of the easiest ways to do things is in that team approach. And so how often do you actually sit down with that person and do an investigation or interview him as part of an investigation? That's really the, the tough question, especially for people that don't understand the work that you and I do, which is, can you do a threat assessment without talking to the bad guy? And the answer is yes. I may not have the ability to talk to an ex-employee or the domestic violence partner of an employee. So we have to make a value judgment based on our experience and our sense of this case, because we may not get to talk to the actual threatener or the perpetrator. Now, of course, in my work, if I'm given the opportunity to talk to the threatener or the perpetrator, I will every time because I want that face-to-face. -face. I want that ability to assess this person's body language and tone and what, what they're all about. I also have folks like you and, and some of my other mental health colleagues, since I'm not a clinician, that I can bring in for those cases where we really need a deeper dive into this person's behavior. And, and oftentimes, from your work, you've seen that these, some of these perpetrators can be pretty narcissistic, and they want to tell their story. They want you to know everything about them. They want you to know why they want to make people afraid. And so I use my mental health colleagues to, to really give me a, sometimes a deeper look at this person's behavior. What are the most, and this is a general question, but I'm sure you have an opinion about it because you've done so many of these cases. Are there common triggers, if you will, I'm using more of a I guess, psychology term, triggers that precede threats, obviously workplace violence, and, and of course, are the obvious ones, like somebody's been terminated and that kind of thing. What do you commonly see? I've interviewed three, three uh, workplace violence murders in prison, and the common factor for all three of those guys at, before they did their crime was the desire for revenge. And I tell people in, in and around the organization, whether it's security or HR or the company attorneys or even law enforcement, pay attention to who this person wants to hurt. Is it a love relationship that's gone badly? Is it a boss-employee relationship? Is it a coworker thing? There's somebody that this person wants to hurt, and they want it bad enough to be able to do it. Whether or not they hurt themselves afterward is another factor, but this idea that the desire for revenge, in my experience, is the number one driver for why these people engage in homicide. I, I, you hurt me physically, emotionally, my heart, my brain, my head, whatever, and you're going to pay. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. What kinds, and again, let's make it really clear, and I know both of us completely agree, that if somebody hurts somebody else, that person is 100% responsible for that action. So my, I want to put that out there before I ask the next question. At the same time, when you talk about desire for revenge, I think we all know that there are certain ways of treating people, certain ways of talking to people, certain ways of handling situations that can certainly increase the odds that person is going to perceive that they've been disrespected, that they've been humiliated. And that's something I've heard quite a bit is the sense of I was treated unfairly. Not that I was fired necessarily, but it was the way that I was fired. It was the way that I was disciplined. And 
I'm wondering what, in terms of handling the termination process, that you think lowers the risk that somebody's going to feel that need for revenge. You're, you make a great point there. And, and if I would say the stuff that I've seen, which really drives a lot of that in terms of the employee boss or employee to employee relationship, it's bullying. And this person is perceived that the, the perpetrator who ends up striking out later on is perceived as the victim of bullying. And from the schoolyard till now, bullying has had such a psychological impact on people that they feel fearful, that they feel vulnerable. And if you have access to a handgun and you feel bullied and you can make that leap to this person has to pay for bullying me, that's where we get it. In terms of the termination, you know, I always try to, to say this, this is a kind of a role play. This is an acting exercise. We have to act we may be super frustrated with this employee. We may, be, we may want this person out of our, our lives and hair and, and, and organization as fast as possible, but we have to go through a process. We have to treat this person with empathy and dignity. We have to provide them options <clears throat> for how they separate from the organization. I use, I use the concept of, of benevolent severance all the time. We're going to give this person, if it was a game show, it would be lovely parting gifts. They're going to get some piece of severance or continuation of EAP or employee assistance benefits. This is a process here and we don't do it with everybody, but we do it with those people. We feel like that desire for revenge is so strong that we must mitigate it with as many buffers, you know, what my mental health colleagues call a soft landing as possible so that this is not an issue with us. And also we can demonstrate due diligence if we get sued by this person that we attempted to, to create an environment for them to be a smooth transition as they leave. I think there's, I think that is money well spent. <laughs> I really when think I talk it to, is. to lawyers and they go, they say stuff like, we're firing this guy. And I said, yes. And well, why are we rewarding him for his negative behavior or his threatening behavior? I said, you're not rewarding him for his negative behavior. You're creating this soft landing. You're giving him options. He goes away with some money. He goes away with some benefits that expire. He goes away. He signed the release that says he won't sue the organization. We create a, a structured settlement where he gets a, a check every two weeks as long as he's not a threatening, a dangerous guy. And that, those people tend to go away. I agree. And I, I, I understand the person who's saying, like you said, hey, we're firing this person or this person was a poor performer or this person had an attitude problem or whatever. But I think in the context of that termination, I would agree it is possible to be honest with somebody and still be respectful. I use person. the phrase crossroads. You know, that, that's one of my go-to phrases for especially those types of difficult conversations. It, it, it's, we, we had to make a business decision. We're at a crossroads you seem unhappy with us and we've had long discussions with you about performance. We've given you coaching and it's not worked out. We we're at a crossroads and that's an attempt to say, this is not a personal attack on you and, and who you are. And we, we're, we're, we're ready to provide you with these certain benefits as a way for you to be able to move on to another phase of your life. And I don't, I just take it out of this concept that well, we're rewarding this guy for being a, a threatener and we're rewarding this guy for being dangerous. And it's not about that. We're helping this guy transition. So this desire for revenge is not top of mind for him. We're going to take a quick break. Thanks for tuning into today's show. If you have a topic you'd like to suggest or just feedback about one of our shows, please contact me at drjonijohnston.com. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. This is not a fight of Republican versus Democrat. It's not a fight of rich versus poor, old versus young, man versus woman, gay versus straight. It's not a fight of black lives, blue lives, Hispanic lives, or white lives. This is a battle of good versus evil. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. But we are the vision of the voices 
America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. Tell me about the downside of social media when it comes to workplace violence, what you've seen in the workplace. I guess the t- most difficult cases I ever have to manage is when someone posts something volatile or threatening or provocative on social media, and you and I might, as you're a mental health professional, I'm a threat assessment guy, we may perceive it a certain way, but then the organization says, well, but he's just kidding around. Or, And then the other side of the coin is I say, this guy's not necessarily dangerous, he's just eccentric. And then the organization says, oh, he's dangerous, and he, he could come in and shoot up the place. I've had several cases that have come to me off of social media threats where the, the, the client has used the presence of a recent event to say, it was just like this one. And there was a shooting at a high school, I think in Santa Clarita, young kid that shot some folks there. I think it was a broken heart. He's like 15 years old, this kid. And my client said, we just had this case the other day. I said, they're completely different. What you're talking about here does not connect to this, this kid in the high school at, at all. So I think there's a, a double-edged sword with social media. Do people take it too seriously when it's just eccentric behavior? And you've seen the postings. Not everybody that puts up odd or eccentric things is a murderer. And then there's the ones where they, they don't take it seriously enough. Absolutely. And it is a judgment call to some extent, but typically it's a judgment call, hopefully backed up by other facts other than just those words, like you said, unless they're just words that would be scary or threatening to anybody. What kind of guidelines would you give employers in terms of, okay, these are the kinds of threats on social media that should be taken seriously? I think we have a a difficult boundary line with social media because some people in organizations say, hey, we'd like you to you know, promote our organization while you're on the weekends. Uh, if you're going to go out and do something, you're at a football game and you're wearing one of our shirts, take a picture of it. So there's a blurring of the lines about what the, the company's social media posture is as opposed to someone's personal social media where they, they connect their organization that they work to. You know, here's me wearing my you know, cell phone shirt. I work for the cell phone provider at the, at the football game kind of a thing. I think the, the lines, and we've seen this in, in government, especially like with cops and firefighters, between their personal cell phone versus their, quote, department-issued cell phone, the, the social media or the sites that they go to. I think those lines really need to be clear, clear and say, this device that we give you is for work only. It's a laptop, it's a tablet, it's a cell phone. Do not post anything about our organization on your personal social media if you're going to post stuff on this, it has to be connected to our business and positive, et cetera, so that there's really strict guidelines. Because I think the, the, the lines are way too blurry about personal cell phones versus work cell phones versus personal social media versus company social media. I think the, the, the guidelines are blurry. And I think that's true. I used to do so many harassment investigations, and that's something that I would hear a lot of times when things happened off-site. So business travel or some kind of event that was work-related or just a group of business people that were going out together. I think those expectations have to be really clear about what is a work-related event. And I would imagine that applies to threats and aggressive or violent behavior as well. There was a case uh, that I remember that a guy was an IT worker and he posted something that he was planning on putting on his headphones and shooting up the organization. And he actually had a seizure before he could press the, the send button, it was a Facebook posting, and they came in after he was taken to the hospital and they were sort of clearing up his desk and they saw this thing on there. And, and he didn't actually send it out. He wrote it, but he didn't send it. So you can see 
all the, you know, his lawyer was saying, well, he didn't actually send it. So you can't say it, it went out there. And they, we said, well, he wrote it. And they said, well, you can't prove that he wrote it. It might've been somebody else. So you can see how complex these cases are. It's just like the sexual harassment piece. say this in this context, this photograph or this statement here makes sense or doesn't make sense in the context of the environment. It's very complicated. It is complicated. And it's, I think it's complicated from a behavioral or psychological perspective as well. One thing I was thinking as you were talking is, how does fitness for duty fit in to this? In terms of if you have somebody who's acting, as you mentioned earlier, oddly at work, people are expressing concerns about the way he or she is behaving. How does that fit in? I this part better than I do because I talk to my clinician friends all the time about how the mental health community needs to educate corporate America about the difference between a threat assessment versus a fitness for duty evaluation. And so I, I, I rarely get situations where I actually believe we need a fitness for duty evaluation and I bring it to my psychiatrist colleagues and they, they do the fitness for duty. A lot of times I think people, especially in HR and security and in the top levels of the organization, confuse what a fitness for duty evaluation is. It is a complex five to six hour testing evaluation, conversation with this employee. And, and it's not always necessary in every event. It can be expensive to do and it's time consuming and it's a, a big process. I, I worked with a large community college district and we had a, a professor who with tenure and other things, he was really, I thought he was dangerous just based on his behavior and a lot of other factors. And I said, he needs a fitness for duty evaluation. They said, in 35 years, we've never sent an employee for a fitness for duty evaluation. I said, well, it's time to do it now. So I think there's a, a grave misunderstanding in corporate America that what a fitness for duty actually is and what the ramifications are and how they get a copy of the report and, and everything. I always ask my mental health colleagues like you to really help them understand what that actually means. Yeah, I think it is complicated. I've done several of them. Um, and most often it's been in the, in the context of this is a, value, a valuable employee. This employee appears to be having some mental health problems, people are concerned about him. It has not been in the context of a threat. So it's been a little bit more clear cut. It's been more along the lines of we've expressed concerns for this person. This person insists that he's fine. We're clearly seeing indication that he's not fine. Our customers have come to us. They care about him as well. And so it's been more of a mental health issue as opposed to an employee conduct issue or a workplace violence assessment. But I think sometimes those boundaries get blurred. And I do think there needs to be some education about when is it appropriate to do this and, and, and what's the goal. And I think one of the things that, that you know, from your experience and intuitively is sometimes they ask you, can he return to work? And you say, that's not the presenting question I should be answering. The presenting question which you answer is, is this person dangerous? Yes or no? And there's a lot of gray areas in between, but you say, he's a plumber. Can he go back to work as a plumber? And I'm like, yes, he's a very dangerous plumber. So I, I've had those situations where the clinician does not answer the presenting question. I, you and I are concerned about dangerousness. I'm not concerned about whether the guy can go back to being an accountant or whatever it is. That, that's not, that part's secondary to me. And I think that's another part that the, the fitness for duty or any threat assessment needs to answer. It's not necessarily this person's work quality or performance. It's whether or not we can trust him to come back in the organization, not harm himself or other people. And I think you're right, Steve. I think a lot of times where that breaks down is that when the clinician gets a fitness for duty evaluation, the question isn't clear. Because in the situation I was describing to you, it was more of a question of, is this person capable psychologically of performing 
the, the duties of the job. This wasn't a, a workplace violence situation. But if this person had been threatening, if this person had been acting aggressively, if this person had been acting oddly in a scary way, that would have been the question. They need, need to be addressed. So I think sometimes you're right. I think sometimes there's a, a lack of understanding and lack of communication about what is the question we're trying to answer if we're asking that person to, get to, to be seen for a psychological evaluation or whatever. And that p- people in, that contact you say, can you predict violence? And that's not possible. We, we can't predict anything, but we can, ass- the metaphor that folks in our world always talk about is, can I predict a heart attack? I say, no, but if you have high cholesterol, you have clogged arteries, if you're overweight, if you've got diabetes, if you have a family history, we can certainly say it's possible as opposed to somebody who doesn't have those same characteristics. So I think there's a, I think plaintiff's attorneys get this confused as well, you know, especially in expert witness testimony and depositions. Are you predicting violence? And the answer is no. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think anybody can predict violence. We, we're at the very best I think that we can do is a, hopefully a very educated guess that's based on science and based on the evidence and information that we have at hand. And from your work, the perpetrator decides what he or she is going to do. And the smallest contextual change, how they are treated by their HR you know, person during the termination or how they're treated by their boss poorly or, or positively, whether or not they have a positive relationship with their coworkers, whether they have so many off the job factors at home, substance abuse, domestic violence, whatever it is, those are the factors that we don't have oftentimes knowledge of or control of that really flip the switch for certain people. Yes. When are companies, let's talk about companies before we talk about schools, when are companies most likely to be sued and when are they most likely to be found liable in a workplace violence situation? I hear from the HR people I talk to and from the attorneys that if we have created a, a path, a, a successful path for this person in the termination process where there's empathy, there's support, there's this benevolent severance, that the chances of being sued are much less. They go down to infinitesimally small numbers. If we have the opposite of that, where there's a where there's an antagonistic relationship all the way through the up to the discipline and termination process, then we can almost guarantee the lawsuit. So, you know, it, this idea of kind of bedside manner in HR, how we treat people from the onboarding process all the way to when they retire, quit, get fired, whatever, there's that sense of we, we do this, it's the human part of human resources. And when we do this with skill, we do this with compassion, these things are much less likely. And how about the other side of that? I know you were saying that you don't have to deal a lot with the aftermath, fortunately, of a workplace violence incident. But I would imagine that you've, you're familiar and you've been involved to some extent with situations that have happened. So you're talking about, as we were talking about earlier, about here's somebody who's been maybe had a threat assessment or been terminated and may sue over some of those kind of things. What about people who have either witnessed workplace violence, they've been injured in a workplace violence situation, and they're now suing their employer saying, you didn't protect me. You should have known that this person was going to be violent. Yeah, just to put a little context in before the lawsuit part happens, I had a case once where a guy was a victim of a workplace violence injury, and and, and the employer kept saying to me, when is he going to come back to work? He's been sitting around on our dime and disability. And, and it's just really the sense of not much empathy or compassion for the guy. I said, everybody's different in terms of their mental health response. I said, this guy may never come back. 
I said, some people are exposed to a horrific situation like a workplace suicide and they're back the next day and they go, no, I'm fine. And they actually are fine. And then there are people that are tertiary victims, they're third hand removed that don't never return back to the organization. So the, the sense that everybody has a universal mental health cure after being exposed to the, these traumatic events is ridiculous. And I guess the, the part for the, the lawsuit thing for me is, can you demonstrate compassion as an organization and still keep your business ethics? Can you create an environment where people are treated with, with dignity and respect and still run a tight ship? And, and those things are possible. We know organizations that have that kind of culture. We work hard, we take care of each other, but we're also firm, fair, and consistent in our application and policies. But those types of things happen where there's inconsistency and people are, are mistreated. And all they need to go is to a a labor law or plaintiff's attorneys and say, here's my story. And the person says, what, what's the size of the organization? It's a, a Fortune 50 company. Yeah, I'll take that case. And, and then we're off to the lawsuit. I really like that point that you made because I didn't think about that initially. The point being that how employers treat other people who might have been injured or traumatized in a workplace violence situation can really make them more likely to sue or less likely to sue. Have you ever, and I'm not, I don't want to obviously have you talk about like a personal case or a case that you've been involved with that would be a breach of confidentiality, but have you ever known of a case where the, the employer had such notice or people were going to that supervisor, HR person or whatever over and over again and saying, so-and-so is a loose cannon. Something bad is going to happen here. And the kind of warning was dismissed or overlooked or whatever. And then something happened. Yes, I, I have. And most of the time I get involved in those is I, I, I don't do a lot of expert witness work and I have a 50-50 plaintiffs versus defendant. Yeah, if I believe strongly in the case, I'll take it even if it's a plaintiff side. And the ones where I've taken with the plaintiffs where it's just egregious behavior on the part of the organization not to recognize the warning signs. The case I recall, this guy was a, a white supremacist and he had done a bunch of stuff where he had made a KKK hood at work. And they sent him as soon as he came back from suspension to that to diversity training. And he shot and killed a bunch of folks in the diversity classroom. So that kind of behavior is say, we know this guy has had decades of problems. And yet you ignored it for the usual reasons of we need the employee, we need the guy has to do his work, it's hard to get people and all the usual rationalizations that we make. And think about how many times you've seen people rationalize irrational behavior based on the fact that they don't have the courage with a capital C to get involved in those cases and say he needs to be removed from our organization immediately. What do you recommend in terms of reporting systems for employees who might be concerned about retaliation, even though I know you've said that's unlikely? I like a kind of an ombudsman tip line thing. I, I see organizations that put this in. We, we really see a lot in the schools, especially K through 12 schools, where they put in a tip line, we tip, Crime Stoppers, whatever it's called, where staff members and teachers and parents and people in the community could call in and say, hey, I heard about this, or I'm worried about this kid, or I'm worried about this staff member. That same type of thing in organizations, which is the tip line that says, hey, we, we, just, we don't necessarily want to know who you are, but we want to know the information. And if you're afraid to report, we need to know about that. The other thing is that we have a, a follow-through process, whether it's through software or hard copy reporting that says, this is going to get screened and looked at by security or HR or threat assessment professionals to be able to make a good value judgment. It doesn't fall through the cracks. So when we see a, a software system, we see a reporting system where people say, I have confidence that when I say this, it's going to be looked at. That, that's the goal. How are the dynamics in a school situation different than the workplace. Obviously, 
their students and not employees and they're younger. But other than that, what are the dynamics that are different? I, I tell you, my number one pet peeve with schools is access to firearms by these kids. I'm a gun owner. I used to be a cop. I get all that, but I still see all these kids that get access to these firearms that they use to kill other kids and, and teachers from home. And so that's a conversation I've had with school boards and PTAs and school districts to say, we have to do a better job of keeping these guns out of these kids' hands. And so this idea that parents say, well, my kid knows not to go in that, that box that's marked Glock under my bed, that's ridiculous. And we look at these cases where you got 14, 15, 16-year-old shooters, they get the gun from home. The other part about the schools is, and this is the, the sort of the curse of Columbine, is we're pretty well established as to how to report school violence and to make threat assessment decisions based on current or former students, based on just the fact that Columbine, we had the 20-year anniversary of this in April, has really set the protocol for what we do. Obviously, at the college level, because of not Sandy Hook, of, of Virginia Tech. Virginia, yeah. There's so many protocols in place for college student threat assessment, but the, the Columbine really set the standard says for K-12 schools, we must pay attention to these issues in ways that we never did before that. And how do you encourage kids? Because that is the one area where I still hear the kind of, oh, I thought he was just kidding. Yeah, I guess the tougher part is the whole snitches get stitches kind of culture in schools where kids are afraid to report and afraid to tell their parents. And I told my kids, I said, I, I don't care what's going on, if it's dangerous and you need to tell me and I'll, I'll figure out how to keep you out of it. And when I talk to the school administrators, but you're, you're not going to come in after the fact and tell me that you knew X, Y, and Z and you didn't come and tell me. We need the type of relationship with our parents and our, our children to say, if it's dangerous, you got to tell your parents, you got to tell a counselor, you got to tell a teacher that you trust, you got to tell somebody that, that we can address this as this idea that, that we see these things in the aftermath and everybody seemed to know except the people who could have done something about it is just tragic. It is tragic. And, and I do think, I think on the one hand, I think that's gotten better. I do think kids are more aware of the kind of the mantra, see something, say something. And at the same time, I'm having raised four kids. My youngest is now a senior in high school. And I still see that same reluctance to speak up and that same sense of not wanting to rat somebody out and the same sense of like dismissing things or it's okay. And I, we've had several conversations about it. And I think part of it is just, it's difficult. People, kids do say things. We all know that. Teenagers say things they don't mean, or they say things that they're regret or whatever. But at the same time, I think that the potential downside is it's just not worth making that judgment. I always tell my kids, let an adult make that decision that it was a joke or That's whatever. Great. That's great. D don't make that decision yourself. That's not something that you need on your shoulders. You look at the, the shooting in Florida at the Stoneman Douglas High School, that kid had so many red flags. That's where all the litigation's coming from. Something like 17, 17 incidents and multiple suspensions and, and things that even a person that's not in our business would say, this is a problem kid and we missed a lot of the warning signs. I sat in on a, on a Secret Service presentation which just a couple of weeks ago, just very powerful. It was about three hours long. It was a webinar they did to, to announce their new report about mass shootings. I think they looked at about a two or three year span. And they had one of the, the sheriffs from Florida come in and he said it was an absolute failure in that school district to, to look at this kid and put him in a threat assessment process. I was really shocked. He pulled zero punches. He said it was an absolute failure by the administration to recognize this kid's warning signs. And what was his understanding, Steve, as to why that didn't happen? He, he, he said to the principal had a threat assessment request for this kid and it sat on his desk for three months. And so I think there's an inertia issue. There's a momentum concern. There's a bureaucracy. There's a buck passing that people don't want to take responsibility for a very complex series of events that have to happen. And, and the legacy of Columbine and other cases like Sandy Hook and that are just that we cannot say, let's wait and see what happens. 
What can parents do to encourage school professionals to be more proactive or to be more timely in their responses? I think that, yeah, that's a tough one. I think there's some pressure that can be put on the school board members to say, look, you represent this district and you have, maybe you're the one that hires and fires the superintendent. We have an expectation of our safe schools with our kids. That's a conversation that may need to happen in a public forum, like a school board meeting. I think that the best schools that I have worked with have a, a sort of a sense of stakeholders. It's the counselors, it's the janitors. When my company does training for these people, we train the bus drivers, we train the school safety patrol lady, because she may see this kid, the bus driver may see this, the notebook that this kid left on the bus and say, well, what do I tell about all these weird drawings and stuff that this kid's put on there? So we train the cafeteria ladies. So there's a sense of continuity that says, if you're a part-time employee at this school, or you're a full-time employee, you've been here 25 years, you're a teacher, a counselor, or whatever, or you're an assistant soccer coach, you have the same duty of care to tell us what's going on if you have concerns about this kid. I think that's really critical because a lot of times it's, it is the cafeteria worker who's hearing people at lunchtime, but it's the librarian who's hearing people um, who are whispering when they're in the library with books. These are the people who are most likely to overhear some of those things or be aware of those things. And again, as we were talking earlier, I think a lot of times those individuals have been the last to get training if they got any training at all. And that idea is like the, the standard joke in our business, which is whenever the cops go to some serial killer's neighborhood, the neighbors always said, he's a quiet man. You know, we didn't hear much from him. He kept his lawn short. That kind of awareness that the people around the edges of this person know better than anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. We are almost out of time. And I always ask this question. If there was one thing that you would want our listeners today to take away from our discussion, what would it be? My thing is, I'm really about the sense of awareness, whether it's K through 12 schools or whether it's you're going to a, a mall with your kids or you're going to the movie theater. There's a sense of violence in our country, which is just catastrophic when these things happen. I, I, the people that survive these events are paying attention to, they have good situational awareness, their heads on a swivel. So whether it's what you teach your kids in a K through 12 environment, I, I told my daughter when she was in college, the same thing, pay attention to what's going on around campus. So the, the age of your kid is not the factor, it's the environment they're in. So I'm really in the, the situational awareness that we have in our, our world until these things stop and there's no sense that they are, we have to be aware. Well, Steve, thank you so much for coming on. You have been doing this work for so long. You really were a pioneer when it comes to workplace violence. I mean, you were thanks, doing Johnny. this, you were doing this when nobody else was doing it, really. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. And thanks a lot, Joni. Thank you. You're listening to the Forensic Psychologist. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.